You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Hooked, a show about addiction within the Muslim community. We will explore stories of addiction and recovery from within the Muslim community, talk to experts within the addiction field. We will also explore addiction and recovery from an Islamic perspective. Assalamu alaikum. This is an interview that I conducted with a sister who uh, wants to remain anonymous. And for this reason, uh, her voice is acted by uh, someone else. Assalamualaikum. I just read your post regarding addiction. I lost my 30-year-old brother who had battled many addictions. I would like to know about your brother's addictions and his and your experience. What addictions did your brother have? Many. He started with cigarettes, I think, around 12, 13 years old, and he went on to drugs. He was dependent on cannabis for a good three to four years, at the same time dabbled on in harder drugs. We finally got him help and clean, which is when he found alcohol. We managed to get him sober, and he became addicted to prescription drugs, tramadol, dihydrocodone, mixing them with caffeine, and occasionally drink. He just had an addictive personality. I have to add, he was a hafiz of the Quran, and prayed his salah, and constantly asked Allah for forgiveness. Even when he was under the influence, he would cry and beg Allah to forgive him, which was the most heartbreaking part of it all. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Amen. He would be clean for many months, years, then suddenly for some reason just trip, and then that one mistake he would feel so guilt-ridden it would become a vicious circle. My father had the patience of a saint, it was with him right to the very end, rehabs, medical attention, everything. Allah knew best. What kind of rehab did he go to? Uh, Rainbow House. It was a program for nine months. He went there straight from prison. He was in prison for breach of peace. And my parents said that they would only take him home if he completed the program there, which he did. But life just kept throwing him curveballs, and he could not handle them. He found prescription drugs. They, in the end, put so much pressure on his organs Alcohol was and is the worst drug. The devastation that it caused him, his health, everyone around him. He would rather he stayed on cannabis now. I would say it was the better of the two evils. Do you know why he started cigarettes, then cannabis? It appears in his group, his friends, they all dabbled. It was fun. They all did it for fun. There was four of them. One is now a very successful, mashallah, uh, pharmacist. The other struggled, however, not to the extent my brother did. And now he runs his own business. My brother just never knew when to stop. Were they around the same age? Yes. They were all the same age, maybe a year apart. When did you and your family find out your brother was taking drugs? When he was around 15, but before that there were behaviour issues. What kind of issues? Always in and out of trouble. This is the hardest part to talk about, however. He has in recent years told us that the root of his issues stemmed from being touched by someone whilst on holiday in Pakistan. 
And now when we think about it, it is since then that he's been in a mess, and no matter what we did, we could not get him to settle. He was my only brother. We could not save him. Allah needed him home. May Allah grant him genital food Um. Did he try talking about this incident to a counsellor? Yes, for many years, but by this point he had become addicted to different things and was constantly looking to numb reality. Do you feel that there was the right help for him? There was no questioning the help. What advice would you give that could possibly prevent someone else becoming addicted? Personally, now with my own sons, it's just communication and really talking to him about the dangers. The problem the problem we, I guess, had was that we never ever in our wildest dreams thought this could or would happen as a possibility in our family. In hindsight, we were being naive. And at the beginning, never knew what the signs were, what to look out for. Fifteen years ago, brother, this was not as big as an epidemic in our, in our community as it has become now. Now everyone you speak to will tell you they know of someone. So true. Yeah. We have lost a generation of young men, and if it continues as it is, young girls are not far behind. Is there any advice you could give to an addict? Oh, I wish I, they mostly crave love and acceptance and want to find success. But the problem is they don't love themselves. They have such low self-esteem. Getting someone to see self-worth has got to be the hardest and most soul-destroying thing to ever have to do. But souls usually have so much to offer, but just they just can't see it. My brother had so much love for his family, and so much time for us, sisters. There was only the three of us. He was younger than myself, and then our younger sister. He was the most protective, caring brother. I don't just say this because he is gone. This is what made it harder. I believe you. I feel... Families just need to be aware of the signs and realize no one is safe. Do not ever think not in our family, not my child. If you suspect, nip it in the bud straight away. Peers, school, the biggest thing in our community is listening to our children when it comes to issues such as my brother faced and realizing the emotional turmoil and scars and damage it can do and the behavior it can lead to, we found out all too late. Is there anything else you would like to say to the community? I wish and hope that one day we can talk about this openly, without the fear of the individual being judged, or the parents. Our community still likes to judge and point fingers at the parents, shaming them in a sense. Sometimes parents try and try and try, but when you're unaware of the signs and have lived a life where this was non-existent, we cannot blame or shame. We live to learn. And some lose their way, some lose it along the way. My parents lost their only son, but it was not without a fight. As soon as they realized, they tried, but it was not Allah's will. Today, though, we have no excuse. Today, we are aware. We should know. We know the issue exists. We need to open our eyes and speak and help our children. However, I'm still trying. I'm not sure I have the answer, but I can try. I have a 13-year-old, and I worry I may be too protective. In the end, Allah has told us, He will test us with one or the other, health, wealth, or children. May He protect and safeguard all our young, including ourselves.
Amen. I'm aware that some among the community sell drugs. What would you say to them, if anything? If they are selling, it's to make a quick buck or to feed their addiction. They need education. They need to be built up. They need to feel successful. How? I wish I knew. It's so frustrating. It's a vicious cycle. They're not to blame. Jazakallah, sister, for your time sharing what must have been an extremely heartbreaking tragedy. No problem. Please remember my brother and my parents in your du'as. I will do, inshallah. So welcome back everyone and this is uh, part of the, uh, our addiction show called Hook and uh, this interview is with uh, two guests. So we have uh, Sister Yasmin and Sister Abda. Um, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. So inshallah just uh, so the listeners know um, a bit about yourselves. Um, maybe you could just introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, my name's Yasmin. Um, I've been Scottish refit for between eight or nine years. Um, I live in Easter House. Okay. And how about yourself? I'm still close to Yasmin, and um, I'm just here to give a bit of moral support. Okay. And are you uh, a river or what's your background? My mum and dad are from Pakistan, but I always say everyone has their journey to Islam. Okay, Jazakallah khair. So, uh, today, inshallah, what I want to do is, um, I want to talk a bit about addiction within families. Um, so, inshallah, that's, that's, that's the aim of our show, um, to, to cover addictions from different points of view. So, um, it was Sister Yasmin, you'd uh, said to myself that um, you had family members that were um, addicted to drugs, and in mm-hmm. particular, uh, today we're going to talk about your parents. Yeah, so, so yeah. Very heavily into alcohol, to the work. Um, my dad was schizophrenia, so he was on um, different types of drugs um, to help him. But every time he tainted an aggressive mood, um, the police had to come in to strain him and take him into Gatkosh Hospital. Got him better with different drugs. Said to my mum that he was all right. Came back out, started drinking again, and it was just like a roller coaster. So, um, so your dad did he? Uh did he have schizophrenia before yeah. he took alcohol, or is this something that... I think this was an ongoing thing, because my mum was always told that it was never in depression that he had. And I always remember in um, 1980, um, when he really attacked really bad, he hurt her with a hammer, the head to toe, um, and she was crawling outside the, the street team at the hospital, and he could have got done for attempted murder, but didn't get touched. And we found out that she had, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So he was living under my mum's roof. They were drinking, and he was very, very high violent. And you were saying that your mum, she used to drink heavily as well? Yeah, the two of them drank together. They knew what the problem was. They just chose to ignore it. Okay. And do you know how that started, or is that something that just as, as, as long as you can remember, they were always drinking? I think my mum, I think my mum must have started when, because she had a stillborn. And okay. I, always, I always remember her talking about it. And she was the oldest child in the family, and she was telling us how a baby was dead in the court and that, and she was telling us how dramatic it was. So okay. I think maybe it started maybe then, okay. and then she had to go through that bad trauma. My dad was in the Korean War. Okay. So, so was he a soldier? He was a yeah. soldier. So I think maybe it started 
then you had all this trauma. All right, okay, so through. maybe something like post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder that they would yeah. say now, isn't it, with uh, veterans when they usually come back? All right, okay. So where was this? Like, what country was this? Was this in Scotland, I'm guessing? Yes, you, it's you all lived Easter in house. Oh, so you all lived in, uh-huh. in Easter House? Okay. And... Um, how did that affect uh, yourself? So, um, when you when you would see your parents drinking, was it was it always negative, or was there just times where it, they were just drinking and there was no problems? No, it was very very negative. So it was my two sisters left the house at the age of fourteen. Um, well, my first sister she left and went to London to be a nurse. So she lived in the the how the training houses that you get, the how of you training to be a nurse. Okay. So she was there um, at a young age and then from there my, my dad put a shovel over my sister's head, my second eldest, and um, put a shovel over her head and he got seven months for that, so he did. So she left when she was about 14, she stayed with the eldest sister. Who'd already left? Or? That had already left. Right, okay. Um, and then I was the only one left. I think they left more um, because it wasn't his, it wasn't their real father. All right, okay. So, um, so did they have a like when your uh, dad when he hadn't had a a drink was he violent or was he okay usually? He was usually all right if he didn't have a drink. It's the minute they they started drink then that's when the violence started. I mean, I could do the cars for you in Christmas and things like that. Um, we stayed in a tap flat. So what happened was, is I had to figure out how I'm going to get out of this house to call the police, because at that time there were no phones in the house. It was telephone booths. Right, okay. So you're stuck in a tap flat. Your dad closes the doors, doesn't let you out. So you have to get yourself prepared. How are you going to get out to protect your mum? And somehow I managed to get, I managed to do it. Somehow. And I would always wait for it to happen. Every Christmas and New Year was always the same. And when the police, my dad get lifted. And I would go to Manny Grosses. She was a Christian. Okay. And I would always go down there for refuge. I'm talking about the age of seven, eight years age. Eight. So seven, eight years old. So you're saying what well, your dad would come and maybe lock you in a room and then lock, lock all in the house. So we would well, lock us all in the house and, and then what we start beating, beating my mum up. Beating your mum up and then yeah. uh, these guys would try and get out of the house so you could phone the police uh-huh. so that someone could stop it. Yeah. And at that time, you know, seven yeah. years old. I was in the courts one one year, that was about six, tried to strangle me because he couldn't get to my mum. And I had to go up and identify him in the courts mm-hmm. to tell them what, what, what he'd done. And what was that like? I remember that. That was very traumatizing. Yeah. Because I was still a child. Yeah. It's not something that a child should ever have to witness. No, definitely not. And um, how was your mum affected by alcohol then? Because you understand you're talking about your dad. He was alcoholic. And his tendency was that he would lash out and, and, and beat people up, whether yeah. that was the kids or whether that was his wife. But um, how, how did your mum react to alcohol? My mum was terrible as well because she would start flinging all sorts of abuse to him. So that would just kind of fuel the fire. Okay, so they'd both start drinking and then because of that she would start maybe swearing or yeah. coding them. Yeah. And then he had a tendency to get angry and that. Yeah. Um, so then it would turn into 
And how often did that happen? Like, how often did they drink? Quite a few, quite a lot. So, was it like in a week? Would it be once a week or every day? Or every day? Yeah, every day. And did they work or anything? Um, yeah, my mum held a job down in the house, but she retired because the shop was getting pulled down. It was across the road um, from the Royal Infirmary. It was an Italian restaurant okay. that she used to work in. My dad, at one point, um, in his time, we did see he was a bus driver, but when I was in that age that I knew, now I could remember things, he yeah. wasn't working then. So he was just pretending that he was working, but it was just your mum that was going out and uh, working? Yeah. But she was able to drink alcohol, but still... Um, so she had a problem still? Oh, know, yeah. Was, my mum made her own whiskey. All right, okay. <laughs> my mum my could tell you what was rubbish whiskey to um, good whiskey. She made her own. Yeah. And... Um, she can drink to oblivion, but she'd be up five o'clock in the morning cleaning up our house. All right, okay. So she could do that and then oh, uh, straight away she'd be back up, mm-hmm. uh, can manage the house, could go and hold down a job. And how did she react with yours with, as kids? Alcohol was the first thing. Right, so she could do the job, she could do yeah. the cleaning, but when it came to kids, nah. it wasn't that good. No, it wasn't that good. I thought mother pushed you out to pick up bouts for them in the street, um, cigarette bouts. Yeah. In the house from the street. Yeah. So she can get something to smoke because she's drunk all her, her money. So was that a problem as well then that she was she was just working but whatever money was coming in it was Yeah, just she was on. never drinking it. So yeah. they were we grew up with chop pork chips and beans, that was our dinner. Sometimes we didn't get dinner, we had to go somewhere to get fed. Right. So we that's, had things. That's quite tough, isn't it? Yeah, quite difficult. And um, you were saying to me earlier on that the parents um, both passed away now. Yeah, correct? both yeah. of them have passed away. Both. My my dad and um, I realised who my real dad was when he turned dementia. He he became that calm that he could turn off his injections that he used to get every month. For schizophrenia. Yeah. Okay. So he didn't have to have any kind of medication. And that, that was the first time I ever witnessed to see this person that was so violent, completely different person. So it was just completely calm? And yeah, completely calm. And it, uh, was this, was he quite old when this happened? He was 72. 72, okay. Very nice. And, uh, and, and he had dementia. So were you able to then, what was your relationship with your dad like then? Like, what was it like as you were younger? And then what was it like once you'd grown up and he'd now when, calmed down? When I was younger, I, I couldn't stand the man. I, I didn't like even being next to him. I, it got to the stage when I got to 14 years of age. I was like, I'd rather go into a home than stay in this any longer. Yeah. And that's when my older sister decided to take me to London because by that time I had enough. Yeah, so your older sister was able to. Yeah, because I was getting bullied in school. So I was, because I'm dark skinned. Yeah. And then when you've got parents coming up trying to salvage them out and make it better, they make it worse. Okay. So the bullying wasn't even in school, it was outside school when I was getting, when all this abuse was happening in the house as well. So, so the bullying was that, that was separate, that wasn't necessarily as a result of the parents taking um, alcohol. Yeah. It was. Yeah, okay. because it made, the, it made the bullying worse because they were coming to the school drunk. Right, okay, so when they were trying to help you by coming up to school, yeah, they, they were coming up and then that, what did that result in then? The, 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 
the Beatles and Screaming got a lot worse. Yeah. And then what happened later on then? How did you, how was your relationship with your dad? So if you've left at 14 and you've got to stay with your sister, did you come back and stay with them? When did I you? Think I didn't, I never went back to my mum's house to stay. I, I got my own house when I was 16. Okay. I couldn't go back to that abusive atmosphere. It was just, it was too much. Okay. Because my mum was the time type of person that she'd take the dunes, then he would get put into the hospital. The doctors would come back to my mum. We've got him um, under new medication. He's a lot better. Could you take him back and give him another try? And she would be staff and say, yes, I'll take him back. And then it would start again. So it was a vicious circle. Yeah, okay. And so at what, at what point then did... Did you did did it, did it change the relationship with your dad? Then so what about when you were saying when he became older, he went into a home, that kind yeah. of, and he had calmed down. Were you able to then salvage any of that yeah. relationship? When when he got older, and um, I got older myself, I started to realise that it was an illness. When when I get told you had schizophrenia from the doctor, the last. But the last um, abuse that my mum came, that was horrendous. And that's when the doctors decided to tell us it was schizophrenia. And they knew that he had that for many years. If it tell my mum, for saying, some reason, I don't know why, they kept it behind her. Now, up until the, the last, you know how abuse that she came off in the hammer. Okay. Um, I realised it was a disease. He had it was an illness. He was only just silly. He was taking alcohol that made, made it worse. The treatment, and I did feel sorry for him. Therefore, my elder sister, she was a nurse. She still couldn't understand why he'd done this to my mum. And you would think because she was a nurse, she'd have more, more understanding about the schizophrenia. Yeah, but maybe it's the idea of growing up and seeing your mum being uh, hurt all the time that, yeah. you know, eventually just, yeah. you, you maybe just can't come to that stage mm-hmm. where you can make an excuse for someone and you go, okay, maybe they have got an illness, but, you know, that's still not an excuse. Yeah. Whereas for yourself, you're saying that you could understand, you understood that as, okay, that he has got an, an, un- an underlying illness, which is making it worse. Mm-hmm. So then how did the relationship go for there then, your dad? Well, I could see that they were starting to try and help themselves, to turn them to the A. A few times. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And sometimes it helped, other times it didn't. But you could see that we're still trying. Yeah. We're still trying to put it right. But when my dad started taking the dementia, he was taking a, a few, no, how to call it, strokes. Right, okay. So the first stroke was that bad that he had to get a tube put in his stomach. Right. And he was in the home at that time. So we did calm down quite a lot. Yeah. And we did have a couple of years now have a good memories. Okay. Now how did it change man that it became? Something, something really beautiful. You know that? Yeah. Um, and that's strange because usually you'll, you know, you'll hear people say that, or they end up with dementia or something, and you know that was traumatizing, and you know. Um, that was horrible, mm-hmm. and then actually to hear yourself say, "Well, you know, it was a lot better than you know, oh, you know, than, than the person that I knew uh, growing up." Um, and how about your mum? Then what happened to your mum? So, so she, she, she was taking alcohol and she was in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Did she eventually split from your dad? No, no, no she still no. stayed with him. Stopped, him, right stopped by him until he, he died. 
And so what happened? How did what happened with her addiction? How did that continue then? I always believe that my mum's addiction didn't stop until she was told she was going to die. Okay. It was because she died there and for seen her anyway, but she was told if she didn't stop, then she was going to die sooner than later. Yeah. And she decided, um, through good will, probably that was, says, well, if I give up the smoking and I don't give up the drinking, I'm going to go back to the drink and I'm going to smoke. So there's no point. So I need to give the two of them up. Right. She wanted, so she wanted to give up smoking because of her illness. Yeah. Um, which was kind of like a lung disease. Uh-huh. But um, she realised that if I, if I take a drink, I'm going to just smoke yeah. and do everything anyway. Yeah. So because, she knew. So she, she had to actually give up the, the drink so she would gain control of herself so yeah. that she wouldn't mm-hmm. smoke, um, which would eventually kill her if she didn't. She got three extra years out of her life for doing that. And what was that like, seeing your mum when she wasn't taking alcohol? That was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Me and my mum never used to get on when she was going through all this alcohol problems. But as she gradually started coming off it, I seen a different person and we got very, very close. So we did, um, that's when I turned to Islam, when I watched my mum die in front of me. That was the biggest thing ever to witness. 35 years this woman put up with abuse free alcohol. Yeah, so, and then you were saying that was the point where you became Muslim as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was just right about before your mum passed away? Or after just, my mum passed away. Just after she passed away, but that was a, a big thing for you? That was a very big thing, because my family and my sisters, they, they turned to alcohol. And I, I questioned myself, do I want to go down the road with my family, drink themselves to oblivion, or do I want to change and be a good person that doesn't drink? And I've never looked back. Yeah. So you were saying that your sisters, um, they, they, they turned to drink because they, they never gave them much support because she always stuck with my dad. They kind of just, if they were coming up to visit, they stayed in London. She would have to go somewhere separate and not have my dad there and that's the relationship that she had with them. So I think they were feeling bad about that and that's why the drink was getting more and more so for the, my sisters. So you're saying that your parents had drink problems and then later on your sisters actually ended up? Well they had the drink problem before but it got, you can see it was getting worse because they must have been feeling bad because they never supported her then she really did it. Okay. And I was the one that really looked after my mum and that's how I decided I needed to change this cycle and stop doing what my parents done. Yeah. Very drinking because it can just ruin people's lives. Yeah. And and is that something that was common at that time? Was it like was there lots of families that were were, that were struggling because of parents that were drinking? Because it's Scottish culture. So it was it was a norm. Yeah. For people to drink it still is, I feel as if it's getting worse because they put so much cheap alcohol in the shops for to um, encourage kids to come and buy it. Yeah. It's so easy. It's so easy to buy alcohol now. Kids think it's um, a fashion fashion statement Some, to help drink. Uh, something, that, something good to do, maybe, yeah. just enjoy yourself in the weekend. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that when you get addicted to it and you can't live without it, and then it starts having a negative effect on everything yeah. in your life, and that's where it's no longer... Just an enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, you need it. Because I noticed that with my mum and dad. 
the benefit went wrong, that's the first thing they took. Further dissolving the matter and trying to fix it. Yeah. It was a good drink. And just put it straight yeah. to alcohol. Straight to alcohol. So I also wanted to ask you um, another question. Um, first of all, what do you think um, adults that have a problem with alcohol or any other drug, whether or not their parents, but probably especially if their parents are of children, what do you think those people should do? What would your advice be for them? Well, the adults are two ways that you can do it if you're Muslim, is practice your dream, because once you implement your prayers, then you know that you've got to stop the drinking. So that gradually takes time for that to happen. You can't do that straight away. Anybody that drinks can't just stop it just like that. And if you're not Muslim, you can go to the AA, because you find the AA does work. I've seen it working because I've helped people that never knew that they and I've seen the successes of what it does. It does work, but it's got to come from within. That person needs to want to help themselves. It just won't work. If you try and force somebody to do something that they don't, they don't want to do, it's never going to work. No. But your advice would be that um, if they're Muslim, then get back into your, your religion, start praying, and then mm-hmm. gradually get off of the alcohol. But if you're not Muslim, go to the A. But what about, would you not advise Muslims also to go to the A? Yeah, uh, but Because I, I, I know plenty of people that have tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pray, uh, but uh, they still can't get rid of, um, you know, the addiction. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. So so I think, do you, do you think that people like that should also? Yeah, I Muslims think A is a, big, is a big thing. It'll help anybody that's wanting help. And the people there that will take your telephone number and if you're really needing the help, if you're having a bad day, they'll phone you up and they'll, they'll, they'll kind of help you through your bad patch. Yeah, these guys don't just want you to come in and say, I'm such and such a person, I'm an alcoholic. And no, it doesn't stop there. You can go and have you know, cups of tea and a biscuit, a chat with your other people and you give them the phone numbers and what they do is they'll keep in touch with you and if you're having a bad day, you call them and they'll help you. They'll not leave you alone until they know that you're back on the street and path again. Yeah. They're really, really supportive. And I think with the, the AA as well, they've got their 12 steps, isn't it, to yeah. um, alcohol uh-huh. recovery. And part of that is that you then at the end uh, also support others. That, so by that's you, what it's by, about. By you supporting others. So, so basically people that are within the AA, the majority of them are people who are previous have alcoholics. Have lived a life. So you're not, you're not um, going and talking to a, a specialist or a professional that's, that's went and got a degree on mm-hmm. it, but has never had an addiction problem. Yeah. But the AA is very down to earth and it's people that are uh, recovering uh, and They're all going through the same thing. And even you can um, you can put yourself voluntarily to give a hand in the cafeteria that you can serve the tea and the coffee and that to other people that are just coming into the doors that have never had any help before. So th- there is benefits you're helping somebody else that really needs the help. Yeah. So it's good to get involved. So, so that would be something that uh, maybe we should encourage Muslims that, you know, yeah. if you want to do a bit of voluntary work, why not get in contact with organisations mm-hmm. like the AA or other organisations and volunteer time, yeah. whether it's, you know, being able to be on the end of the phone uh, for people that are wanting to talk or it's to phone people mm-hmm. to see how they're doing or it's to, like you said, you know, make cups of tea and coffee yeah. or 
um, you know, whatever uh, you know you, you mm-hmm. can do, but to, to take part in something that will actually be beneficial mm. um, to someone. And they're also a book that you can get for the as well. It'll tell you all the areas because I know people that they they go to one place, but they also if they're going on holiday around Britain, they're everywhere. You can visit any different one that you want to go to. The, the doors open for everybody yeah. in all areas. Alright, so it's so because it's the twelve steps and it's the, the system's kind of the same mm-hmm. wherever you go. So you're saying yeah. that if you go um, somewhere down to England, say you're going away for a, uh-huh. a couple of weeks or something, and you want the support, so because you can't pop into your local way meeting uh, that you used to go into, yeah. they're quite open for anyone they're just walking open, in. Open for anybody coming in, and the good thing I liked about it was as well is if you're if you're one year sober. You can go on the top table and talk about your experience and how your journey was, what you lost, what you gained, and what other people can get from your story is something else. Some of the stories I've heard is quite touching. Yeah. What they've been through, what they've lost, they've lost their families, they've lost their house, they've been homeless, and they've managed to get back onto the street path, and they're doing well, they're working, they're, they're doing such a good Thing for yeah. themselves. And, and for Muslims as well, it's, and, and I guess people who, fall, who believe in a God, um, it's good in the sense that that is part of the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I know they, they, they sort of uh, reformed that slightly, people that didn't believe in a God. Yeah, they um, kind of yeah. But, but that idea that, that, that you submit and say that, you know, I can't do this, you know, basically... Up until now, you know, whatever I've tried, you know, to do it myself, to get away from being addicted, um, it's not worked. Mm-hmm. So I need to accept that I can't change you this. You can't change it. Yeah. Um, and especially with the same mindset and the same method that I've been using that has been continuously mm-hmm. failing. So therefore, I have to accept that there's another way and I have yeah. to be open to that. Yeah. And also that there is a greater power, um, meaning God, yeah. you know, who will... Uh, help you through it. Exactly. So that's one of the processes exactly. of um, that, that people go through in the AA meetings. And I think for Muslims, that's easy to you know understand. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's submitting yourself that I can't do it on my own. I need guidance. Mm-hmm. I need um, I need Allah uh, to help me here. Mm-hmm. And so one is the prayer and asking Allah, but at the same time also having a system that's tried and tested and it actually works yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's good the support groups that they've got oh, um, because that's that's something that you know you know if a person just stops taking alcohol or drugs no one right about really knows the way that they're feeling yeah, they don't know what but whereas these guys uh, they do not mm-hmm. um, and they can empathise with you and they can give you wee tips and hints on how to manage or what's going to come up and how they done it and how the other person did it mm-hmm. um, which you know uh, you can't always get from people unless they've actually gone through that. Yeah, even people that have not got any alcohol problems, if you see anybody that's struggling, don't. Drop your nose up the wrong way. When you see somebody like this, try and help them. Try and guide them uh, the right way. Don't, because a lot of people just judge and how a person looks because they're drunk. They went through really bad journeys that made else probably hasn't experienced. Yeah, like you were saying, like yeah. your mum, for example, um, having a child die and then with the 
your father, you know, maybe the stress of coming back from, from a war, yeah. you know, and seeing, you know, horrible things. Um, people maybe don't always realise that it's a difference between maybe just people that occasionally drink alcohol for a bit of enjoyment yeah. and then the person that's addicted. And it's usually because they're coping off, they're working with serious um, issues. Yeah. But Jazakallah here for your time. Uh, and I hope this is beneficial for, for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Today, inshallah, we've got an opportunity to interview um, Dr. Ifan Jahangir. Yeah? And he's a consultant psychiatrist uh, in North Lanarkshire. And also he's the imam of Airdrie Mustard. And he runs a revert uh, support program uh, within the masjid, which uh, I have to say, from what I know about, is quite successful. Alhamdulillah. And uh, there are now people trying to copy it, which is a good thing. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So Alhamdulillah. Uh, may Allah reward you uh, for this. So basically, due to our program that we're doing, we just want to get an idea of um, addiction. Uh, maybe look at the Islamic point of view um, a bit later. But especially from the point of view of that you're a consultant uh, psychiatrist, so you know what is addiction? What would you define addiction mm-hmm. as? Addiction basically is is something where a person um, becomes dependent on, and the way the way the human brain works, it works on what we call as a a reward circuit. So the, the reward circuit basically is when a person gets used to something uh, pleasurable. There is a reward feeling, a feeling of high, if you like, that the brain feels. So in in relation to anything which is not natural, which is unnatural, like illicit drug use, which we're talking about, the, the addiction part of it, what they do is they they send this reward um, kind of circuit into a flooding situation in, the, in overdrive. That there's a huge amount of chemical, the dopamine, which is released at that time. And because uh, the body has to react to that, so the body reacts in one of the two ways. It either um, slows down the process of release of dopamine from the body, or what it does is that it stops the body from enjoying that part of uh, the dopamine release. So the way the changes happen in our brain, um, they cause this person to want more and more of what he initially used to get that high and the person as it's you know usually described by every person that they are chasing that high but they're never able to get that because now there's a structural change in the brain which is not allowing this person to feel the same way as he did in the beginning because the the chemical responsible for that dopamine is no longer available or is available in smaller amounts so that's basically what leads to addiction because the person is trying to get more out of it and is not able to get the same feeling Okay, so so it's an, an initial sort of. Uh, we've interviewed a few people that had um, uh, taken drugs, and they and they 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 say that the first time that they had taken it, they experienced this sort of bliss, this sort of enjoyment that they've never, uh, or this pleasure that they've never felt before, mm-hmm. um, which what you're saying actually causes the change within the the, the brain, That's right. which then they try and chase later on. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned, they never really get that feeling repeated again. Yeah. Um, or they're having to take maybe higher doses of the yeah. same thing to mm-hmm. try and achieve that. Um, so no, that's that's quite interesting to know that it's uh, uh, that it, that it's actually a change within the brain because yeah. 
many people that you'll talk to, they'll say that, you know, um, we'll maybe get onto this later on on what the recovery process is, but mm-hmm. they maybe don't understand um, the idea of cravings and, Absolutely. and Absolutely. how uh, if you haven't taken that drug, you probably will never understand. Sure. Or is there a way that you could understand? What, how would you it's, describe it? It is. It is absolutely difficult to to actually. You can you can correlate with things. You can correlate with things like a person getting a, a gadget of some sort for the first time, and the, the the euphoria that the person feels is amazing. And yet, three months down the line, the very same gadget is lying on the floor, and even if he uses it more often, it doesn't give the same feeling. And you you try and get a an upgrade of the same. And the feeling comes back for a, for a, for a temporary period, but that goes away. But but even that is not the best description, to be honest, about how it works, because initially there's the chemical changes, as I mentioned, how the dopamine uh, the release decreases or its effect on the body decreases. But later on, if a person is using it for a long period of time, then there are actual structural changes in the brain, which can cause more difficulties for the longer term. So when we're talking about people in recovery or trying to get out of this addiction, it's not a straightforward issue. It's much more complex than that. And there's a lot of help and support that is required, which which we can discuss. Yeah, no, that, that, we'll get on to that. It, another interesting thing that I was uh, listening to an interview that someone had done uh, where they had said that, you know, there maybe there's like one out of every 10 person in the population that that sort of has, maybe you can describe it as an addictive personality or it finds it easier to become addicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, look, for example, you can have two friends, both of them maybe casually start drinking alcohol and one of them starts to uh, have an addiction to it mm-hmm. and it goes down a path where the person becomes an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But yet another person, the same friend, who started taking alcohol the same way, yet doesn't have that. Uh, addiction and can very easily go without the alcohol isn't really dependent upon uh, it. Is that something that you that uh, can be dis- that can be explained? See, the it can, it can be explained actually. There is see for the for the mental health issues, there are what we call as a triangle, a triad of things which combine together. So there's no there's no easy answers to the question. Basically, there is a genetic factor. Definitely, there is a gen- genes do play a part in it, but not the whole part of it. That's not the the person drinks. Oh, it's my genes. So blame the genes. It's, it's not yeah. it's not like that. So genes or genetic makeup of an individual does play a part. There's a combination of three, as I mentioned: genetic part in it, the environment that a person is living in or is growing up, and the third is the development of the individual. So when all these three factors combine together in a negative manner for an individual, if he's prone genetically, if the environment wasn't right, and if the development that he was going through wasn't appropriate, then of course that person will be more likely to, to go down the road of addiction. And that explains your example of two two people taking the alcohol and one going down the road of you know, being fine and the other one really going addicted by that. So that's, these are the three triad of things okay. that combine negative. So, so I'm guessing that like... Um Genetics is something you can't change if if you if that's, that's a part that, of it you're, you're stuck with it. But that's correct. But that alone isn't enough to to turn you into an addict. No, there's also it was the environment and the and behavior, the development. The development. development. So I'm guessing that is that development. What do you mean by that? Is that the the while the person was growing up or yeah. yes? Yeah. See, see the, the the part that that the environment plays is the the factors around you. Were you living in an area where drugs and alcohol was rife? 
we living in in a house where the parents were taking it and then the personal development how did you respond to stresses how did you respond to your peer groups how did you respond to peer pressures when you were put although your environment was fine your family was fine but the peer groups people you associated with you developed and what kind of development did you have as a person Okay. And how kind of a personality you developed later on? Okay, now that's that's interesting because uh, th- through looking into to this topic, um, you you hear the the term. Um, I think it's um, is it is it emotional intelligence or something like that? Well being, uh-huh. and it's uh-huh. the idea of um, being able to deal with your problems, learning to deal with them, mm-hmm. and there can be a consequence, especially at a young age, if someone becomes addicted to that. Uh, they're automatically their behaviour now is to just turn towards this thing to solve their problem to yeah. soothe them to make them feel better, mm-hmm. um, which means that they haven't ever learned how to cope without uh, without that drug. Yeah. So, no. yeah, I think I think coping strategies is is what we learn when we are growing up. That's what personal development means. When we are growing up, we are we are learning coping mechanisms, coping skills, and unfortunately, this is one of the negative coping mechanisms that people adapt an easy way out. If if you like, if there is a stressful situation, well, let me let me try and drown all these uh, worries in in this, which which never happens. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so if a person becomes addicted. Then what help is there for them? Uh-huh. There is, I think, I think there is. This is a very complex issue. Um, what help is around? There is a lot of help around. People can access help through self-help groups. There are buddy groups. There are online help groups. There are telephonic help groups, and there is a full gamut of what we call as addiction service which is provided by NHS. And the addiction service has got addiction psychiatrists, which are specialists in dealing with addictions. Then they've got specialist nursing, which nurses which deal with that. And there is a whole lot of help which is around for people to access that. But, but having said that, I think one of the important aspects, if we are talking about the Muslim community in here, um, which is the focus of today's talk. Yeah. That, that is one of the difficulties that people have so much of stigma attached to it that, number one, people do not want to talk about it. They want to just deny it, that this is this is out there, this is happening within the community or within our young people. And if they come out of that, of the denial, then seeking help at right places is not the usual trend. People will go about seeking help from people who are not qualified to do that. And sometimes, even in the name of religion, this thing happens, that they go to a particular person who is deemed as a religious person who's going to take away the devil from this individual as if the devil has taken over. And there's so much of things that happen with it in the name of superstitions, basically. And actual seeking help and accessing the right help is not unfortunately there. And a lot of that um, is to do with awareness and the fact that it is seen as such a stigma and such a dogma that people just want to deny it, not, not want to go close to it. Yeah. But there is a huge amount of help that is available. But okay. well, that, that's interesting that you mentioned that, especially uh, coming from the point of view that you're an imam, you have access to uh, parts of the community that come and trust and confide in you that, that normally um, other Muslims wouldn't. And, and you're saying from your experience that you see that it is a problem because I, I noticed that mm-hmm. um, many people, many Muslims deny that it is an issue yeah. or it's a small issue, but it's not a major mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. So what would you say? What kind of issue do you see it as? I think I think I, I see a huge part of it, unfortunately. As you mentioned, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I have 
a unique kind of um, role from a psychiatrist's perspective as well as from the imam's perspective. So both sides, I'm seeing people trying to access, trying to talk about, like, they'll come around and they'll say, well, this person is depressed. And fair enough, that is a part and parcel of that because you do get depression and other uh, mental health issues with drug use. But when you, you know, slightly scratch the surface, it comes out that the person has drug issues and drug difficulties. And very sadly, I'm really sorry to say this, that I find that when that comes out and when the individual wants to talk about that, the family seems to be distancing itself from that and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want that individual to mention that this is the problem. And if the person you know, mentions that, then there isn't much help and support given to this person because this person suddenly is seen as evil, is seen as somebody, oh, that's that's not us, we don't do this, this is not our family, is bringing shame to family and all the other aspects which are there come out at that time. And this individual is left to deal with a very difficult situation on his own and not be able to even speak to the right people about it. And that really throttles the individual and makes the situation worse. Yeah. Well, that, well I've got to say, through my experience uh, in chaplaincy, I've got to say that that talking to young guys that uh, are addicted, uh, they do mention this, you know, that they even mention that the, the groups that they go to for support, they say they don't really understand, you know, from our point of view, what it's like in our community, mm -hmm. you know, so um, they may be used to dealing with, um, you know, normal society, but they don't understand it from an Islamic point of view. There are these things like, you know, mm -hmm. the shame and, you know, we don't do this type of thing. That's and right. Maybe they haven't had as much exposure to this, so therefore mm -hmm. they get kind of shocked and they don't want to deal with it, so they might just want to you know, say, well, it's something, you know, maybe it's a gin or maybe it's, you know, That's right. something else rather than actually say, no, this is... There, there, there is a problem really yeah. there. And I think one of the one of the interesting things that came out recently and um, in 2016, there was a 30% or 23% increase in the deaths due to um, drug use. In Scotland, we're talking about okay. this. So it was a massive, massive problem there. And what was interesting, in fact, the, the government was really grilled by by its opponents on this, that they've got it wrong, the way they're doing things, um, that the age group of the people who were dying because of drug addiction is 35 and above, and which is very, very serious because usually the usual trend of looking at drugs is the teenage groups where people are experimenting with things and they want to get a high or, or some sort of experimentation trying to get away from the you know um, parental control and all the things, which we, which is basically the case as well. But the, the death of the people who are dying because of drug abuse, 35 and above, that gives us a completely different parameter. These are adults with, with maturity and thinking and sometimes professionals as well. So that, that tells us that there is a much wider need of understanding this issue at a better level. From a Muslim perspective, unfortunately, um, as I was mentioning before to you, there is a kind of a culture of trying to hush it under the carpet and not deal with the real issue and get them to people who are taking the gin out or taking superstitious yeah. things with them. But what I wanted to mention in this study, one, one thing that came out was that they talked about prevention. And they talked about that prevention is a massive, massive part of it. And interestingly enough, one thing which has really worked for addictions to help people is Alcoholic Anonymous, which is well known. And the, the reason that they are so successful is because they are brought in a higher being 
into it. One of the 12 steps that they take is the first step that they ask the person who is um, who has difficulties with addiction is that you have to say to yourself that I'm not able to cure myself, but somebody supreme is going to cure me. So even if you have faith or you have no faith, you're looking at a supreme being to help you. And looking at Islamic perspective, we have that in bills. The very first step, which is of help, of prevention, is to make people think that this is not a right thing to do. And in prevention, the study mentioned that if the young kids and young people themselves get the feeling that this is harmful, there's a higher chance of them keeping away. So this is exactly what Islam tells us. They're trying to tell people that this is harmful and this is not good for you because the Creator is telling you that and it's a part and parcel of your faith rather than just an advice. So it's an amazing thing that if you look at how the precautions have been helpful, then we already are, should have been a step ahead of that. But unfortunately, we're not taking that step with our youth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was there's another sort of side of it that I was uh, wanting to discuss with yourself which is that sometimes there can be all the help uh, there but unfortunately the person who's going through it doesn't accept you know that that they have an addiction you know um, I'm thinking of an example in my mind of uh, someone who is stealing from his mother, mm-hmm. uh, trashing the house if mm-hmm. she doesn't give him money mm-hmm. to go and buy his drugs, staying out days on end, coming back in all sorts of conditions. Mm-hmm. And yet when I spoke to that person, I said to them, look, you're an addict. Mm-hmm. You need to get help. Uh, they turned around and, you know, uh, most convincingly, you know, said, I'm not an addict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can you deny, you know, this? And do you come across that, you know, where you, you find people who just will not accept even when it's staring them in the face that mm-hmm. that they're addicted. I think I think that the, the difficult as I mentioned earlier on to you is a personality. Sometimes you have people who have difficult or different and difficult types of personalities. And if you happen to have that kind of a personality, you know, you you deny things and you know you're not you know, open about what, what's happening, that can make things harder. And it's very difficult to actually, you're absolutely right, all the help may be, you know, available and, and accessible, but this individual does not accept. So if an, if an individual is in denial, it's very hard to give them any sort of help. But there, there are ways and means of working about that, you know, trying to find out why the individual is denying, well, what are the other issues? Because with addiction comes a lot of baggage. It affects an individual more than people think. Number one, it affects the learning of the individual. It can affect the new learning of the individual. It can affect their decision-making. It can affect how they view things. Their worldview is completely changed. So if their worldview is changed, if their decision-making capacity is affected, their memory could be affected. So it's the learning of new processes, memory, and all these aspects. So we need to really look at in a more kind of caring manner towards these people that, you know, find you have a difficulty and it's causing you more harm. And if it's coming to a point where the individual is struggling, making wrong decisions, wrong choices, because his decision-making capacity is, is not at the best level. So it could be related to depression. It could be related to anxiety at that time. Even psychotic symptoms could come into to it as well. So I think it's it's a full, you know, wider spectrum of things looking at why it's happening and offering and looking at different angles, different aspects, and trying to get them support through that angle. It might sometimes be the case that you might have to treat a person's depression and anxiety, get that to a certain level before he's able to think about these things and then 
um, go back and say, yeah, actually, um, you know, it all came from the drugs, and I need to look at that. Yeah. Another issue that um, that I've noticed, and it's, it's widely talked about, that people that are addicted, um, sometimes they're given, uh, they're told that go cold turkey. You know, wow. just um, mm-hmm. it's all about determination and willpower. Uh, unfortunately, even in religion, they say it's got to do with your belief, mm-hmm. which I think it's. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see where people are coming from, mm-hmm. but I, I see many people who definitely believe in God, mm-hmm. uh, pray five times a day, mm-hmm. but still can't stop drinking alcohol. Yeah. Uh, they go for Hajj, they do mm-hmm. other things. But the, but the point I wanted to mention was that what can happen is sometimes somebody can forcibly stop themselves from, for example, mm-hmm. uh, drinking alcohol. And and they and they now feel that there's a victory that I have, uh, you know, overcome my addiction. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is that they maybe start smoking cannabis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or they go on to maybe going to the gym and they just cannot stop it. Yeah. So they become addicted to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and they mention that that's because... The, as you were mentioning, the underlying issues, which might be like anxiety or depression or something else, mm-hmm. they haven't actually dealt with those issues. That's true. So therefore, by just forcefully stopping one thing, mm-hmm. it's almost like a whack-a-mole, you know, when yes. you go to the, the carnival and you, you hit one of the moles and it goes down and another one pops up. Pops and up, absolutely. So, um, so what's that, you know, yeah. what's that all about? I think I think the, the important thing is, if you look at the Quran, see, when... Well, it's an important thing to talk about alcohol because that, that's a huge part of addiction. Part of uh, when Prophet talked about um, alcohol, we have to understand it was a society which was dependent on alcohol, where the very criteria of your hosting skills were determined by serving of wine. If wine was not served, then you were not a good host. So, talking to that society about alcohol. Look at how the Quran devises it. In Surah um, Baqarah, Allah mentions in verse 219 that, you know, yes, they ask you about alcohol and wine. Tell them that, you know, it's got some benefits for people, monetary benefits for people, and maybe some other benefits for people. But it's ismuha akbar. It's, its harm is greater. And it leaves it there. It leaves it there for a year for people to think about. Because... We were talking about people who are believers, who know the Quran is from God Almighty. So they think, well, it's more harmful than helpful. So what we're doing over here is the first stage of helping people with addiction. And that, from a psychiatric perspective, is the first step because you're doing changing the cognition, changing the thoughts of people. So first thing is to access the thought of the individual. That individual should think that, yes, it's actually harmful for me. And it has to come from the individual. So that's the first stage. Look at the second stage. There's no cold turkeys here. Yeah. Second stage is Allah says in uh, Surah um, uh, Nisa, when Allah mentions in fourth Surah, verse 43, that um, Do not come near your Salah when you are intoxicated. And, and, and subhanAllah, the word intoxicated over here, Khamar is not mentioned here. So it could be any any intoxicants, it could be any drugs. So what, 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 did, what did Quran do over there? Quran did an amazing method of, or taught us an amazing method of detox. Five times a day, Fajr, first thing in the morning, eye-opener, people know that the first thing that the addict has to do, the alcohol addict has to have an eye-opener in the morning. So he's being stopped from that eye-opener. So the society is being told that Fajr time you can't have alcohol, 
Before that, you can't have because you have to do Fajr, so you can't be intoxicated. Zuhur time, you can't have before that, you can't have Asr time, Maghrib time, Isha time. So the people were left with a small amount of time to have alcohol and small amounts of alcohol. So this is an amazing formula, even today, for anybody who is addicted to anything, that five times I can't be doing this. So start your salah five times a day. And when that was, this was, this was in fourth hijra, by the way. So one more year was given. Then another year was given on top of that. So full detox was done. And one year later it was said, إِنَّمُ الْخَمَرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ وَالْأَزْلَامُ رِجْسٌ مِنْ ثَمَلِ الشَّيْطَانِ فَجْتَنِبُهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَفْرِهُونَ That, you know, you've gone these two stages. First was tell your cognition that this is harmful. Then you actually did some practical steps of detoxing your body from this. And the third one was to make it happen completely for people. So any time and every time a person is addicted, if you follow this formula, that this individual is actually made to understand and he thinks about it, then takes the practical steps of detoxing in a certain manner, in a practical manner, and then completely stops. There is excellent chance of success of that, rather than going cold turkey and then, you know, it, it, it's expressing itself in so many different ways. Yeah. Now, I hope that in general. Yeah, no, that, that, that's very uh, interesting. I mean, as I was looking into this, I was trying to find organisations that, Islamic organisations that, that, mm -hmm. that were dealing with um, people that were addicted to, to anything, really. And um, it, and what the, the closest I got to it were were people who were using the twelve steps, and maybe they yes. just tweaked a few of the words just to sort of yeah. uh, make it look a little bit more Islamic. But it was mm. basically still the twelve steps yeah, to recovery. Yeah, that's right, yeah. um, but there was a professor. I think it's a professor. Uh, he's actually a, a religious scholar down in Cardiff, mm -hmm. and he um, he had looked at this method, and he had actually looked at what you were talking about—the method that the Quran mm -hmm. uh, gives us, or the or the method from the Sunnah of the Prophet And he said that he he still hasn't found anyone yet in the world who is actually um, who is using this method mm -hmm. as a way to try and help people right. off of yeah. this. And I don't know. Have you got any experience? Have you come across anyone maybe who's who's? I I don't think as as an organized effect, but I have certainly with our reward support program, we've used this method over there and asked people to do it. And Alhamdulillah, we have had good success with it. We have had good success. We've asked people to keep away from these five tower. And, and the feedback from them has been, it's very, very difficult. It's yeah. not an easy, easy process to follow. But anybody who has done that, we actually felt great about it. And they said, you know, Alhamdulillah, six months down the line or eight months down the line. And remember, the ayah came one year after that. Yeah. So actually, one year was given to people, which sometimes people don't understand. They think, oh, yes, you know, okay, do it for four weeks. It's been happening for four weeks. You're That's still not it. changing. You're still drinking. Yeah. That's not the case. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows our nature. That's why he gave that time period. So he's given us an idea that give one year to people at least for this detox, a natural way of detox, if you like. And then, inshallah, you'll find the results. Yeah. And, and alhamdulillah. But as I said, that these are anecdotal kind of references, yeah. not not a proper study, uh, but uh, absolutely right, you know, the Muslim nations should be doing this, they should be applying this at, at, a, at a national level where people can actually access this kind of help. But I think I must say one thing, that the difficulty is even from a religious perspective and even from the places where the help should come from, which is the masajid, people are not actually accepting People are seeing anybody with addiction as something evil, as I mentioned in the beginning, and they are somebody to be 
kept away from masjid rather than to bring them closer to the masjid. And that is a really sad part of it. And that has to change for a, for a cultural change, for an understanding of how do we become better? How do we improve the lives of those people who are struggling? Yeah. Well, I've got to say, I've got a actual experience of this myself. There was a brother who was addicted to uh, heroin mm-hmm. and other drugs. Very and common, very uh, common. T- took him to the, the masjid and tried to get him some help, take him away for a few days, you know, staying in other masajid mm-hmm. and doing programs and things. But as soon as the people became aware that uh, he had an addiction issue, mm-hmm. uh, they said, you need to go home. You know, you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. And it was very depressing. Um, it was very sad. Um, and when we brought the guy back, I mean, where was there for him to go? Absolutely. You know? um, I, and I think that, you know, you hear this, uh, you know, where people say that the the masjids, you know, they are not places, you know, or clubs for like pious people or, you know, mm-hmm. for, for, for just any other group of people. But they are actually, you know, a bit like hospitals, you know, they're there for people who come broken, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who come uh, with their own human uh, problems. And it's a place where they're actually supposed to find help and support. Absolutely. You see, yeah. the masjid, masjid has to be the centre and the hub of Muslim society. In fact, all of the society, all of the society, there is not a single incidence in the history of Sahaba or Rasulullah where any individual, believer or non-believer, was ever turned away from the masjid. Ever turned away. In fact, Anas mentions in hadith, he says that people would come to Prophet for their own material things. They would ask, no, I, I need this amount of money. And Prophet would never turn them away. Never. And a lot of the time people would say, oh, we are Rasulullah and this person is coming just for money, you know, just monetary gains. And he would say, no, he's coming for monetary gains. Let him see. Let him experience this. If there is any good in his heart, his heart will change. And Anas mentions in this later part of the hadith, he says that, you know, when that individual would come to Prophet purely for material gains, Later on, sometime down the line, Deen would become the most important thing of his life. How did he manage to do that? How did Sahaba manage to do that? By pushing them away? By telling them that we are holier than thou? You go away, oh, I'm, I'm Abu Bakr by the way, and you are, you're nobody? No. They would say that, I wish, Abu Bakr would say, I wish, I wish I was this tiny bit of straw that I didn't have to answer before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we, unfortunately, have don these cloaks of piety over ourselves and exactly how you described that these are clubs of pious people where humans are not not allowed which is not the which is not Quran. yeah and which we know isn't true either you know if we just scratch you know absolutely scratch not. below the absolutely surface not. and we'll find out that you know absolutely there are many other issues that everyone's mm-hmm. uh, going through so so how do you think that uh because this is going to go out predominantly to the muslim community but how do you think we need to uh, move ahead like if for example you had you know a magic wand or something and you could <laughs> wish, you know make things the wish, way you wanted yeah, you know yeah. then um where would where would you want to see people get to or masjids or the muslim society or society mm-hmm. in order to help you know prevent people from getting into this or help the ones recover who are, yeah. who are addicted i think i think uh, the the most critical thing is is young people in our society yeah? and the young people have to start working with the masajid and masajid have to give um, young people the opportunity to do things. We have we've had too much and 
too many of uh, people who are really sitting at one place in the masajid, not doing much for the community, sadly, and just holding on to these reins of masajid as the leaders and the rulers of the masajid. So the young people have to start working and they have to be given an opportunity. Unfortunately, there is no easy fixes. There is no easy answers in my, in my mind. There has to be an awareness and there has to be a start. I mean, we, we talk about in Adria, the masjid that I belong to, we have a structured program over there for reverse support program. But we also have a structured program for the young people. They can come to us and they can talk to us and we take them through a process over there and we help them, inshallah. And even young people are getting involved and they are conducting programs in the masjid. And that's the only way forward, that it has to come from young people and young people have to be a part of that. There's, there's going to be two advantages to that. Number one, the young people that get involved in these positive activities, they will keep away from the negativities. And number two, the people who have unfortunately fallen a prey to these addictions or have you know, made bad choices in their life, they will feel more in tune by attaching to the younger people who are doing positive activities. So I think that that is a huge part of a cultural change in our mindset in our masajid and then also to make awareness among people that you know this is not something that a person is committing a massive sin by which he is going to be condemned in hellfire forever. It's a mistake that a person has made and the person can right that mistake by coming to the to the right path by, by accessing the right help and inshallah to give. But there isn't an easy way out. I wish no. there was a magic wand. No. I've actually found because this is going out to the Muslim community, so some other points that I, that I have noticed as well that sometimes people who are uh, addicted, they want to find uh, a way out. So the usual thing would be go to, you know, so people that are religiously inclined, I'm mm -hmm. talking about, they mm -hmm. might say, right, okay, I need help from Allah, so I need to turn to maybe a mufti or a maulana, mm -hmm. some sheikh, some imam, uh, for guidance on, on what I do, uh, on what I should do. And unfortunately, sometimes... Um, I wouldn't say it's it's done on purpose, but mm -hmm. because the, maybe the the scholar doesn't understand uh, addiction or the imam, uh, they sometimes give advice which religiously is sound, mm -hmm. but the the effect of that upon the person can be devastating. And I'll give you an example. I mm -hmm. spoke to a, a man that uh, that is is an addicted to alcohol five times, prays five mm -hmm. times a day, intention to go for Hajj. And he said to me that I uh, was talking to one of my friends, or I don't know if it was a religious person, about um, my addiction. Mm -hmm. And the, the person tried to scare him by saying to him that, do you understand that if you die in this condition, you'll be resurrected like this in front of Allah? Absolutely. And this, he said, it's, it scared me so much, mm -hmm. I had to have a couple of drinks to get over it. <laughs> so sometimes inadvertently, yes. we true. can be thinking that by scaring someone into mm -hmm. um, not doing this thing, by telling them that they'll go to hell, yeah. that, you know, it will help. But, mm -hmm. um, but what are your views? Do you think that practically that is a, a solution or should be done? Or Absolutely not. Absolutely. See, see, again, we'll go back to the Quran. Did Quran scare people into any, any of the, any of the things which people had to give up? Quran never scared people into this is this is a strategy which has unfortunately become a part and parcel of our scholars. Sadly, and I'm very sorry to say this, that they try to frighten people into submission, if you like, you know. There you go, you have to otherwise Allah will make your pakoras in the hellfire, you know, he'll burn you over there and make your pakoras. And I've heard this word being used, sadly. 
That's that's not the way the Prophet sent to us a single formula. He said, Bashiru Make things easy for people. Do not make things difficult for people. And give glad tidings to people. Do not scare them all. So this is this is a very, very simple method which Prophet has taught us and an amazing method that it has to apply in all the time. I remember when we were working with people who had alcohol-related difficulties and a person came to me and he said to me, oh, I've been told that if I had a drink, 40 days salah cannot be accepted. I said, look, look, Allah says in the Quran, إِنَّ الْحَسَنَاتُ يُزْهِبْنَ That good deeds eat away the bad deeds. And it never says that a bad deed will eat away the good deed or by doing one bad deed, other good deeds are not going to be accepted. So this is a lie, whoever has invented it. So don't do not do that. Even if you make a mistake, try to make 10 good deeds so that the mistake will be kept away. Not that, you know, you make one mistake and you can't do other 40 days salah or whatever has been propagated. And that's been propagated in the name of Hadith. So all these effects that people are making deen effectively so difficult for people to practice that majority of the people are saying, I can't do this. I really can't. And despite their intention to change, despite their intention to, to do things, yes, Fair enough, there's going to be a, a small amount of population or a small amount of people who have addiction problems, who don't want to change, which we talked about in the beginning. Regardless of what you want to give them, they will want to change. Fine. But that's a tiny minority. There is a vast majority which actually want to change, but you have to give them the avenues and the right direction to do that. And unfortunately, as you rightly mentioned, that sometimes going to the masajid or going to the imams or going to the people who are seen as scholars uh, of deen may not be really helpful. So there has to be proper support for this individual. And I think accessing NHS help, accessing self-help groups is, is all right, is good, because they give you a lot of practical help in this regard. But unfortunately, there is a big void for Muslim community that there isn't any Islamic guidance for them. And there is massive guidance. as We, we talked about the three, three Quranic verses which Allah gave us, the steps Allah gave us to do that. But practically, how do you support an individual to actually accomplish that, that is missing. And that is something which we as a Muslim community and Islamic organizations have to think about because there's a massive, massive amount of um, over-representation of Muslim population even in the prisons. And and you know that yourself, you, you, yeah. you are a part and parcel of the championship. Then 4% of population, and if there's 12% of prisoners, that's a massive, massive change. And a lot of that is to do with drug-related offenses. So that is something which community has to come up with and the elders have to rethink about our strategies because clearly the current strategies are not working. They have to rethink, do ijtihad about these things based on the Quranic principles to come up with strategies which will help the Well, I hope that, uh, that inshallah, one of our aims while uh, doing these shows on addiction, uh, one of the aims was that, uh, inshallah, after these go out, to try and get like-minded people together and uh, and try and work towards uh, establishing something uh, in Scotland where we can uh, at least get together and make a start on trying to develop some sort of structure uh, that will help. And and who knows if if we're able to achieve this, inshallah, and help people. Um, it's something maybe that could be replicated uh, elsewhere as well. Inshallah, inshallah. And people are looking at even even NHS when when they send out their um, recommendation, they ask people: Is there any culture specific? Is there any religious religious specific um, um, advice that you can give us? And, and unfortunately, there is 
so much of division that, you know, if they try to approach one community, one area, there's a particular sectarian thought in that, and they achieve another one, there's a, there's another, and that that doesn't help, sadly. And then the NHS or any other organization just back up as, you know, you know there's this conflicting reports coming from people, and we don't want to get involved into any conflicts over here. So that is a, a sad part as yeah, well. Yeah, and that, that will be a hurdle that will have to be looked at. How do we overcome that, our mm-hmm. own inner sectarianism that exists within uh, within yes. Muslims? Absolutely. It, it, it's, a, it's a massive hurdle in, in all our aspects, really, and it has to go. It has to go. People have to get over it and, you know, really, really attach themselves to Allah and His book rather than anything else. Yeah. Jazakallah khair for your time. Are there any final uh, comments you would like to make? Anything that you would like the listeners to hear? Um, I think I think one of the things which I really want to highlight is there's a lot of brothers and sisters, and I must stress the point sisters as well, because a lot of the time they suffer in silence and they're not even able to even express these things. I want to mention to them that please do not worry about this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful. Do not suffer in silence. Allah will provide a way if you are seeking a way out. Allah will definitely provide a way out. And there are ways and means through NHS, through certain Islamic centers. And I, I certainly can vouch for the Adri Islamic Center if people want to access. If they want to look at the reverse support program that we are running, it's a full package that helps people with all their difficulties. Please come forward, seek help and, and talk to people whom you trust. And inshallah, Allah will make a way out. For inshallah. No, inshallah, we'll get your details and put them up with the um, when this goes out, inshallah, so that people can go online and uh, they can inshallah, get in contact with you. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.